picture this. You are trying to help a child learn to do something like cross the street safely. In traditional therapy, you could be telling them how to do that. You could be showing them pictures. You could take them to the street, but then when you're working with children with these conditions, you do run risks that they might run into the street. They might behave in a manner that's unpredictable, that feels dangerous. And so virtual reality is an amazing tool for a situation like that. Welcome to Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Burhovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous episode, I spoke with Lindsay Erst, Chief Scientific Officer, and Rich Brancaccio, Founder and Chief Innovation Officer at Revive Technologies. In their own words, Revive is a digital therapeutics company fusing behavioral science with technology and currently developing a new digital therapy for ADHD. Today, I spoke with Vijay Ravindran, CEO of Florio. In their own words, Florio allows therapy to be more engaging and happen anywhere, assisting people in practicing critical social skills at their own pace through immersive experiences, starting with adolescent autism spectrum disorder. But before I dive in, I was catching up with Brian Sivak a few weeks back, talking about DTX market. What else? And Vijay's name and company came up. I've been interested in the impacts of virtual reality therapies this year and its ability to scale, and so invited Vijay on this show. Brian's introduction of Vijay as a great passionate entrepreneur and just a good human being did not disappoint. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vijay. Vijay, welcome to the DTX podcast. You know, a lot of things happened because of serendipity. I was chatting with our mutual connection, Brian Sivak, who was talking about you guys. And I said, well, listen, this is, would be a perfect and an interesting space. I've been personally fascinated with digital therapies in virtual reality. We've had the pleasure of having Josh from Applied VR earlier in the year, Aaron from Behavior, and now yourself. So for our amazing audience who tunes in every week, would love a little bit of an introduction of yourself first at a personal level and a small interesting fact about yourself before we get into Florio and the company you're building. Thank you for having me. Thank you for Brian for mentioning me. Brian and his new fund are evidenced are an investor in Florio. And, you know, I think the crazy thing, and it just shows how it's such a small world. Brian and I first met when I was at the Washington Post overseeing digital product innovation. And he was at the city of DC office of the chief technology officer. And that's how we initially met. And then years later, here we are colliding again in healthcare. Thanks for having me. I have been leading Florio for the last seven plus years now. And as far as small, interesting fact about me, um, I grew up in Oklahoma. I love it. I've actually never been to Oklahoma. So if you're still there, I'm happy to visit. <laughs> no, no, I, my parents moved away after I went to college, So, but I still consider it home, and I'm a rabid Oklahoma Sooner football fan. Excellent. For all the fans listening, here we are. Well, let's get into more, Florio. As, as you already alluded to, you started this in 2016. What was the inspiration to start it? How did it even come about? And even the name itself, be curious. My background is not in healthcare. I had worked in tech prior and in 2012, my son was diagnosed on the autism spectrum, and that 
led to a journey that has included, you know, thousands of hours of therapy and intervention to help him. And he's made tremendous progress. He saw me trying out new virtual reality technology in late 2015. I had a developer kit from Oculus. I had bought a Samsung Gear VR, which had just entered the market, and he wanted to try it out. He spent about 30 minutes in VR, and he had really, really positive engagement. But more impressively, his play afterwards reflected some of the experiences he had done in VR, which was a breakthrough in my eyes for him. And so that ended up being a light bulb moment that perhaps virtual reality could be a next generation medium for therapy for kids who are neurodiverse with conditions like autism and needing help with areas that could take advantage of the immersive environment. The name Florio comes from the Latin root of the word flourish or blossom. So it's the idea is to help every child flourish. No, amazing. So first of all, thank you for sharing the, the personal story on this. I always say this uh, on this podcast and beyond is that many of the entrepreneurs that get into the space, they get into healthcare for personal reasons, family, friends, and others. So kudos for kicking this off. You know, let's take it broader. I mean, you are a business and obviously you have to look at the market, the market dynamics, you know, how many people get diagnosed. So maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about autism and the market itself. Absolutely. So autism spectrum disorder is a diagnosis for a delay in social skills. There's a number of other associated challenges that children who are diagnosed often face. The diagnosis rate has been skyrocketing over the last 20 years. It's gone up over 400% in those 20 years. And today in the U.S., the diagnosis rate is one in 33 kids. And is it because there's more diagnostic tools around this? Is that also part of it, that many people and kids went undiagnosed before? That's definitely part of it. There's a couple of, I think, main drivers and then some that are more speculative. I think the main drivers that no one argues with is that we have a better healthcare system today than we did 20 years ago. And through initiatives like the Affordable Care Act, children are getting services sooner and this condition is being identified sooner as a result. But I think the other element is that when we went from the psychiatric manual, the DSM-4 to the DSM-5, the condition of autism had a, a more expansive definition or diagnostic criteria than it did before. And that's been especially important because there's been clear underdiagnosis in girls that a lot of the ways that we tested for autism 10 or 15 years ago was very boy-centered in the activities we looked for and therefore missed a lot of opportunities to diagnose and start treatment earlier. You know, I, I know I kind of threw you off with the diagnostic piece, so maybe a little bit more around kind of the statistics of, you know, how many people are actually getting diagnosed. And you focused on the adolescent and young market, right? Correct. We can touch on later how we've started to get into the job skills areas for adults and some of those transitional skills, but we're, we're adolescent focused. You know, the number in the U.S., we're talking about somewhere around 1.5 million kids at current diagnosis rates. You know, at any one time, somewhere around 40 to 50% of them are receiving active treatment. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, we'd love to, before we get into, you know, the science and the experiences and kind of broader market entry for you guys, 
there are a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this and you know this is a tough market for any entrepreneurs almost in any industry but i think healthcare health tech and dtx has also suffered but would love to hear a little bit about your own funding journey again you mentioned you started the company in 2016 i think your first round was a 17 and you know again it's always interesting for all of us entrepreneurs to understand kind of what are the milestones around the growth patterns and the, as you grow and continue on with the business? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just one of the biggest challenges of trying to grow a business like this is uh, the investor story and being able to line up your milestones to, to raise sufficient capital to get to the next set of milestones. You know, as I mentioned, I started the company in 2016. It was a basement project initially, not something I was working full time on for uh, part of that year. And you know, I was fortunate, you know, I was an early engineer at Amazon and was at Amazon for many years. I was able to self-fund the company for the first year, including bringing staff in to start building an MVP and start applying for grants to see if we could find research partners on testing some of the concepts. In 2017, two really important things happened. One is that we won an NIH fast track grant with Children's Hospital Philadelphia. It was a a real milestone for us because it opened up $2 million in grant fundings over the, the next few years. In parallel to that, we did a, essentially a, a pre-seed round that did draw in a couple of venture funds that were VR focused. And then the rest of that, I really used my network from my time at Amazon and later at the Washington Post to fill that in. We raised a couple of million dollars in 2017 and it created a two-year runway to start getting to more milestones. That included, over those next two years, doing a first research study showing you know, early signs of safety and efficacy. We were able to publish in JMIR Pediatrics the results of that first study. The NIH study completed its phase one and was published in the Autism Research Journal and went well, and we started the phase two that included two randomized control trials. And that laid the foundation for our seed round in 2019, where we essentially raised another $2 million to, to keep the company, to, to try and start building that early commercialization. During those early days, we positioned the company as a direct apparent or direct consumer play. But once we were out in the market, we had therapists and teachers downloading and sticking with the product and giving a lot of positive feedback while well, we could see a lot of the challenges of having parents use the product. And that then informed subsequent later raises that we did. So we did an extension round in 2021 and then did our Series A in 2022. And uh, we're working under uh, with that funding today as we start our FDA Pivotal Trial. Excellent. Thank you for that detailed journey. And, you know, it just kind of hit me where, you know, probably about 10 minutes into the conversation, I think most listeners now know that you're tackling ASD uh, and you're tackling it with VR, but maybe walk us through what that experience for the family is, right? So whether it's the caregivers, aka parents and others, and the child adolescent themselves. So let's, let's all immerse ourselves and pretend we're now in VR, but Imagineering is the name of the game here as we listen to the voice. That's right. So picture this. You are trying to help a child learn to do something like cross the street safely. In traditional therapy, you could be telling them how to do that. You could be showing them pictures. 
you could take them to the street, but then when you're working with children with these conditions, you do run risks that they might run into the street. They might behave in a manner that's unpredictable, that feels dangerous. And so virtual reality is an amazing tool for a situation like that. We can create an immersive environment where the child is able to visualize being at the corner of the street, using the pedestrian cross sign, understanding the don't walk and walk, seeing traffic, looking at the cars, learning the mechanics of looking left, right, and then left before safely entering into the street. And also acclimating to the sounds, that beeping noise that the crosswalk makes, both when it's waiting and when it's safe to cross. So the, all of those elements together are brought into the virtual world to immerse the child in the steps that are needed to successfully perform that action. And the parent or clinician working with that child can practice and repeat that practice, can score their performance in there, and is able to then develop confidence that they're ready for that next step to go to the actual road. We create content like that for now about 200 different situations that uh, are challenging to families and to the child. We complement that virtual experience with a coaching application that the caregiver, therapist, special educator uses, they can, from that coaching application, see what the child is seeing. They can manipulate characters to create some of the social dynamics. So if you're working on a inviting a friend to sit next to you at the lunch table at school lesson, the characters can be essentially puppeteered to perform certain actions based on how the child is able to verbalize the invitation to sit next to them or the greetings. So that coaching application ends up being really important. And then I think part of what's really helped us in our growth, especially during the pandemic, is that the coaching application can run both in an in-person session, but also as a telehealth application. Interesting. Almost uh, we had another, I just remembered, we, we just had recently Shine VR. And, and one of the concepts that I've learned is generative VR. And so to me, while maybe it's not true generative, but it sounds like the 200 plus situations, you're able to customize those based on this coaching app, right? To your point. Is that my understanding of the experience? We have a team that creates new content. We have invested technologically in tools to make it easier and faster to create new content. And the content design includes areas of configuration that the adult that's working with the child can choose, such as the distraction levels of pedestrians walking around or background audios that could throw off the child. Now, I think there's a next generation coming with generative AI in the 3D space where we can introduce hyper-personalization uh, as those tools become more and more mature and can be more easily integrated into the, the tools that we work with. But you know, even today, we're able to create lots of different environments and situations and provide the right levers and knobs for the clinician or parent to use to be able to then create some tailoring. Thank you for kind of walking us through this. And uh, I've, I've used this a couple of times now in the, in the VR uh, interviews uh, here, a little bit of this mind over matter. 
but would love to dive a little bit deeper in these 200 plus situations and what actually happens, let's call it biologically, right? So, and your evidence generation journey, because you also mentioned that you guys are also leveraging the funds to go FDA. So let's combine the evidence generation journey and the hypothesis with why FDA route versus not. Yeah, evidence has been important from the very beginning. You know, I've always approached our product from the perspective of a parent that we're bombarded by lots of solutions that have very sketchy evidence behind it, especially in the autism space. There's quite a bit of people that I think take advantage of the desperation so many families feel. And so, you know, we've been doing research since the very beginning, since 2017, to support the safety and efficacy of the system. And that has then informed, you know, the approaches we take and how we design the content. You know, the theory of the case is that in VR, we can create an immersive, repeatable practice environment. And that similar to traditional therapy in the space, that repeatable practice environment combined with the right interactions from the adult that is providing positive reinforcement to build confidence leads to then generalized capabilities in the real world. And so we don't think we're doing anything that's radically different than what's happening in a traditional therapy setting. I often liken what we do to being a very fancy plush toy or toy car or any of the number of other tools that therapists use to help convey a skill to a child in traditional therapy. You know, we're a flashcard, a plush toy, and a toy train all rolled into one. And we're able to create a more flexible environment to teach those skills and allow the therapist to really focus on what matters, which is the live real-time coaching for the child to then be able to understand the skill needed and to create the right positive environment where they feel motivated to carry it out. On the FDA question, you know, I think the phrasing of are you FDA or not? And the answer is yes, because we're both. And I think one of the distinctive qualities of Florio and our approach has been that as a tool for healthcare providers to use in their practice, that we've been very focused on product market fit and being able to demonstrate that the system can blend into the workflow of the existing ecosystem of healthcare providers. And so we've had customers since 2019, and we have over 100 enterprise customers now using the product. And that has been really important in shaping the product and how it should look and also identifying the content that we should be developing on where they need help teaching skills. To us, you know, the FDA milestone is really important because it demonstrates at even a new level safety and efficacy of the system. And it opens up opportunities where, you know, today these providers are essentially using infrastructure dollars to license our system. And, you know, as we continue to climb up the research ladder and able to show efficacy, we can also then have the tools to make the case that ultimately what everyone wants in the ecosystem is children acquiring new skills faster. And if we can show that that can be done, then the entire ecosystem, including payers, will support that. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Vijay Ravindran, CEO of Florio. 
You alluded to this earlier that you started out kind of in the DTC, and I think even on your website today, you still have a, a subscription-based $49.99. You just alluded to 100-plus enterprises slash clinics and others using it. So curious on, you know, yes, FDA is an important, important milestone, right? Just from, again, that validation by the FDA on the efficacy. How are you looking at these channels and, you know, as you go forward commercially scaling, where do you see the DTC? I would almost say not necessarily versus, but, you know, either prescription market or as we've seen in the neurodegenerative uh, disease space, you know, we just had a Keligo OTC, which is different from DTC, I keep reminding people. So walk us through your thinking, reasoning and testing those channels. Big question. And it's an important one. And I think it's, it's as an entrepreneur, it's been the hardest part of this journey. There's no blueprint to just walk necessarily. Uh, and I think this is the challenge for all DTX companies that every single one of us is blazing a new trail in our health condition. And no two health conditions are exactly the same as, as far as the ecosystem of how services are delivered. Each one is unique because you know some have phar pharmaceuticals that are being used, some don't, like in our space. In our space, the education system is really important because this is a condition that's been historically dual treated by the education system and the healthcare system simultaneously. That also ends up being uh, an important complexifier. You know, I think in the, in the early days, the focus was on building a product and my mind's eye was focused on myself as the example customer. So it was on parents. And we continue to have a product available for parents to subscribe to. It's not a focus commercially of the company. We don't run marketing to attract parents to finding us that way. We want to help parents to come find us. And so we have an offering for them. But we know it's very tough for parents to use the product when they don't necessarily have the professional training on what the needs of the child are and how they evolve over time. And that's one of the things we learned from our time being DTC. Now, parents can be successful using our product with the right support around them. And we've learned that through, you know, we've been, again, blessed by passionate parents, several of whom have gotten us into Medicaid waiver approval status in several states. And, you know, the, the case that we're really excited about is in Wisconsin, where we're approved under their Medicaid waiver Families are able to, working with their Medicaid service coordinators, not only get the system covered, equipment and software, but get access to parent training from a qualified healthcare provider to come up with the appropriate treatment plan on the content. And today we're doing that directly through our own staff, but it's available in a way that also fits our long-term business model, which is to work with providers. So that's how we view parents. But our primary focus is as a healthcare company offering this product to clinics that deliver behavioral therapy at scale. And so we're working with them. And for them, you know, I think our focus has been on the business side, how can we open up reimbursement pathways for the product? So we're really proud to be the, the first VR behavioral health company with a CPT3 code that's been approved. So that got approved last year by the AMA and is now in effect. The code is 0770T, and it enables providers to start identifying their usage of VR as an augmentation of treatment and be able to identify a practice expense that goes with it. But there's no reimbursement. This is a test code for those who are listening in, right? 
So CPT3 code is a you know tracking or temporary code, depending on who you ask what the T stands for, but it's the first step. So we have created a code that creates the plumbing for eventual reimbursement. And now we're working arm in arm with large providers to start those conversations with payers. So our strategy, which I think is a little different than some of the other DTX companies, is that I think there's limited ability for a startup to convince payers directly on opening up reimbursement for their product. What I do think is possible is that if you win the hearts and minds of providers that are delivering valuable in-network services to payers, and they're convinced that your product is additive to the outcomes of the payers' members, that you can, with them, make a much more compelling uh, rationale to payers as to why you should open up reimbursement. And so that's our strategy. And we're lucky. We have several multi-state autism therapy providers now as customers who are working on exactly that with us because it's in in their best interest. It's in our best interest. It's in the payer's best interest, but they might not know it yet. And it's in the kid's best interest. (laughs) And we're starting to have more and more data supporting that. So now separately, and we think this is all to the betterment even though it might seem like it's uh, biting off more than we can chew. We also license into school districts. And uh, school districts are really important when it comes to autism because so much service after the child is in schooling age is delivered through the school district under the rubric of special education. And so same product from a content standpoint is being used actively by a number of schools, including New York City Public Schools, and we've been the beneficiary of a partnership with Meta, where Meta has donated VR headsets that we can donate to school districts. We also are doing some really cutting-edge research with St. Joseph's University in the context of VR and special education. And through our Meta partnership, we've added, uh, I think, over 50 now school districts as customers since the beginning of the year. And it's enabling us to you know, really develop a solid foothold in what the product there. I think all of these trains meet back up eventually after FDA approval because, you know, schools can tap into Medicaid dollars to help fund for solutions in this population. And so we see them all interconnected over time, as well as in the parent use case where I think with the right supervisory umbrellas put around the parents that, such as the parent training that we're seeing in Wisconsin, that For payers, this is an opportunity to provide more choices where you're incentivizing providers to use the product because it leads to more skills faster. And then you're also creating opportunities for parents to be able to use the product with the right provider supervision so that you can supplement or handle some of the difficult situations families often face that keep them from taking the child into the clinic and getting the appropriate hours. Just listening, obviously, to a lot of these challenges and the perseverance of entrepreneurs like yourself, right? It's, um, you know, always I've been asking a lot of these VR related podcasts, like, is the metaverse here, right? The affordability of the devices, the accessibility of the devices, the reimbursement component, which sounds like that's, it seems to be on the great path with the, you know, T codes. What are your thoughts? Is the metaverse here, right, for these kind of tools? I mean, you're an entrepreneur driving this, so I'm sure the answer is yes, but you know, dive deeper into it. <laughs> yeah, look, I think the technology has gotten so much better since I started the company. And the supports and, and general 
awareness of VR. And I think, you know, the metaverse has lots of different definitions. So I think we are, we're mindful that it can mean a lot of things. I think what, where we focus on is that uh, virtual reality and immersive VR and can lead to a repeatable practice environment that leads to better skills. And so we really stay focused on, we have a job to do. It's arming the clinician, special educator, or parent with a tool that they've never had before that can address a wide range of challenges facing that neurodiverse child and that it can lead to better outcomes faster. And we think we have the data to support that virtual reality is a special teaching medium when it comes to our population. And we don't try to go any more broadly than that. We're very focused on the community we're serving. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hi, Vijay. What is your vision for scaling virtual reality in healthcare? Thank you, Chandana, for the question. You know, for VR and healthcare, you know, scale starts with being able to solve real problems and really help healthcare providers and families reach better outcomes for, in our case, children with autism to get the skill goals they have. Virtual reality technology has been improving year over year and investment continues to pour in. We're excited about Apple's entry into the market next year with the Vision Pro. And even though the price point might seem unreachable, the capabilities that are in that headset from eye tracking to the types of visual displays that they're putting on the outside of the headset so that you can see the face of the person wearing the headset are going to be potentially indispensable for therapists using the product. And so we're really excited about where the technology is going. The other thing that's happening behind the scenes is that the underlying software tools for building new VR is getting better and better. That includes, I think, uh, soon the ability to use generative AI to create 3D environments more rapidly, which I think will lead to a lot of hyper-personalization for therapies. It includes also some of the abilities to allow group-oriented interactions in VR, which I think opens up possibilities for group therapy or scaling a single therapist to multiple children, which would open up a lot of scale. The cost questions are always going to be present as long as we're a solution that healthcare providers are spending infrastructure dollars and hurting their own margins to adopt, that simply improving outcomes without addressing any of the economics is going to be a challenge, which is why for us, we have to stay focused on opening up reimbursement pathways for healthcare providers. Our strategy is that for healthcare providers, we have to produce the research that shows efficacy. We have to also demonstrate that the product blends into their workflow. And I think there, the VR headsets still have a ways to go in being very easy to use for these clinicians. You know, they don't hold charge for very long. They often need software updates. And these types of things trip up a clinician if they're about to start a fee-for-service session of therapy and they have to wait for a software update. They just can't use the tool at all, right? And so there's a lot of things around there as far as ease of use that are coming. And then eventually that has to be supplemented with a recognition throughout the ecosystem that 
using virtual reality as part of behavioral therapy leads to better outcomes faster, and that that needs to be incentivized by the ecosystem, including the appropriate reimbursement codes. And I'm going to hop in here as usual. And this has been my interest around, you know, VR in the space in general and a lot of the challenges. I'm curious on your thoughts because as we're recording this, this just happened very recently. You know, we have Behavior kind of merging with Fern and another injection into it. Prior to that, Behavior merged with Oxford. We had XR Health with Amelia. There's a lot of consolidation going on. I don't think it's unique to the VR market. I think we're seeing this just as companies and unit economics and merging teams are happening. Your thoughts and comments on this recent announcement on Fern and Behavior and where you see this market from unit economics and growth and consolidation going? Yeah, I'm happy for Aaron. You know, we've been both slogging through this for years, running into each other at the various different events like DTX conferences and you know, I don't have any special knowledge. I've only read what's out in the press and what he has posted on LinkedIn. It looks like a really great move for Behavior because they're merging with the with the company that has ex- existing employer contracts, and the opportunities to distribute VR in manners where you can get to those end patients and families with the right supervision by a healthcare provider is the challenge. And I think this merger for him give, he basically is now merged with an entity that actually has healthcare providers on staff. These are the coaches that are performing, you know, digital therapy in his space in the health condition he cares about, which is chronic pain. And then furthermore, already brings in with it relationships to get to distribution faster. And to some extent, potentially sidestep some of the code hunting that some of the startups are having to do, whether it's HixPix codes or CPT codes. Most of the DTX companies have been predominantly HixPix code focused. And I think that merger allows him to just focus on employers. And I think there's some really good precedent for what they've done. And when I looked at different case studies for our own company, you know, Rethink was an autism product from a previous generation that focused on initially parent skills. And then they got their niche essentially with employer health plans offering their parent training modules as a extra benefit for families once they got a diagnosis. So I think there's traction going to employers and employers can often essentially dictate ahead of the commercial payers on what is in the best interest of their employees. And, and that can translate then to scale down the road. So I, I like the move. The word entrepreneur came up probably 17 times minimum here. And I think somebody with a personal family experience kicking this off, I'd love for you to give any advice, any lessons learned to other entrepreneurs that are might be just getting into the space. Go. Yeah. One, it's hard. And, you know, I think one of the things I tell founders when they ask me, hey, I'm thinking about doing this startup. What do you think? I was like, well, you have to really love the idea because you know, if you're totally incompetent, you'll get a business very quickly. And if you have a one in a million luck, you might exit very quickly. But for the rest of us, you're in it for seven to 10 years minimum. <laughs> if you don't love the idea in that seven to 10 year sort of way, you should really think twice before you get into it. And so I've been fortunate, you know, this company started from a space that 
I have a deep interest in trying to help this community. And I believe in the technology that we're building. But I think for anyone, they have to understand that it's a long-term commitment. I think startups are often interpreted as being sometimes shorter-term gigs by some people. And I think that's very naive. They are not short-term. They're long-term commitments. If you're the founder, it's on your shoulders. You can't just uh, change your mind and decide to quit once you've taken investor capital. There's just a lot of strings attached. Yeah, not to mention all the other families and talent that you've built. So I like your term of slug, right? Slugging and getting up. But I think I know the answer and you sort of already alluded to it. But as, as I always kind of finish the podcast with, you know, we started with you and an interesting fact and would love to end with you and what really gets you up in the morning. I get up in the morning excited about where we are and the progress we're making. I usually look overnight to see who's used the system in the past day because, you know, that's the lifeblood of the company is that this is a product that's out there being used to help kids. And every day there's a teacher, parent, or therapist that is deciding that our product is additive to what they're trying to do to help a child reach their goals. That means the world. Well, Vijay, thank you very much for making the time. And I'm sure the world will be hearing more from you and Florio. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.